Welcome to this, the first episode of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series from WBGL Studios. I'm your host, Dale Favors. Through this weekly platform, we'll discuss the racial wealth divide between Black and Latinx communities versus white communities in America. Capitalism doesn't work unless there's a safety net. And everybody has basic human needs. And there needs to be a significant mandate, requirement, transparency around making sure that you're investing in and giving assignments to people of color to invest in communities of color. We need a hyper renewed focus on driving capital into black and brown small businesses. Today and in subsequent programs, we'll look at why these disparities exist including how the historic and continuing factors such as the structural barriers created by systemic economic racism has caused and continues to perpetuate these huge disparities. Additionally, we will explore what can be done and what is being done to provide actionable solutions that will improve the lives within these communities while lifting the country together. It's essential that we acknowledge the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic on Black and Latinx communities. These communities have experienced the greatest negative impact due to greatly unequal access to health care and vaccine distribution. Also, these communities have suffered from tremendous losses through death and the greatest impact to education for young Black and Latinx students. Disruption of work and income lost by these communities is still being analyzed. Before we start the conversation with our guest today, we would like to acknowledge our sponsor. We thank J.P. Morgan Chase, who is proud to sponsor the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they're doing to address these issues and provide solutions at Chase slash path forward. Let's get underway. I'm pleased to have our guest today, and I'll start with Mark Morial president and CEO of the National Urban League and former mayor of New Orleans. Thanks for having me, Dale. No problem at all. Thank you for being here. Let me also introduce you to Dr. Khalil Muhammad, professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and former director of the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture in New York City. Thank you, Dale. Great to be here. Let me also bring in Ms. Adele Cepeda, Chair of Angeles Investors, which has been created to find and fund promising Hispanic and Latinx ventures. Good morning and thank you. And last, Mr. Robert Rodriguez, New York State Assemblyman for the 68th Assembly District in East Harlem, New York. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dale. Dr. Muhammad, let me let me first start with you. What I want you to do is share with us a little bit of the history. Obviously, we all know about slavery, but talk to us about post-slavery. What were some of the things that were that were really put in place from a standpoint of some of the laws and some of the the components that America put in place to hold African-Americans back from building wealth in this country. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I think as much as uh, there's a lot to be said about what Americans think they know about slavery, I think the one thing that they probably don't fully appreciate is that wealth is a consequence of compounded uh, assets. So at some point, capital simply begats capital. Some of the laziest people in the world are the richest people in the world. They simply don't have to work anymore. Their money works for them. 
And when you think about the multiple generations of wealth attained as a consequence of slavery, the financial system itself built on the assets accrued as a result of the exploitation and the land theft of the indigenous, we can't just start uh, after slavery. So I just want to level set. Um, even some of our biggest banks, Chase Manhattan, uh, 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 the Lehman Brothers, um, even big insurance companies, New York Life, these are companies um, that ha have admitted and recognized that a lot of their early capitalization came by way of their involvement in slavery. With that, uh, at the moment of mass emancipation, at the end of the Civil War, African-Americans faced immediate barriers to their full citizenship, which had severe economic consequences. Most directly, they were essentially put back to work through coercive and violent means, uh, such that they were more or less exploited on terms that were not too dissimilar from slavery. Uh, they had very difficult time owning land, accumulating assets uh, as a result of land ownership. Now, one of the great ironies is that by 1920, Black Americans did manage to reach parity in terms of their population, 14% of the U.S. population and 14% of farm ownership. That wasn't a testament to the laws itself. That was a testament to the way that underdeveloped land in the South had become taxed by state governments and whites dumped that land that they thought was uncultivatable and unuseful um, into the market of which Black people pulled it uh, into their uh, portfolios. So land ownership has been key, but economic exploitation has also been key. We also saw the evidence of the criminal justice system as an instrument of coercion, which meant that Black people were railroaded into prison, into convict leasing, uh, into chain gangs. Convict leasing is the early version of prison privatization. And so everything from iron and coal extraction in Alabama and Tennessee was on the backs of Black people. And then that same raw material makes its way to U.S. steel uh, refineries in the North, and particularly in Indiana. And that refined steel makes its way to Detroit to make automobiles and to ultimately build the arsenal of democracy uh, that is part of World War II. So in other words, Black people were subject to exploitation, which continued to create wealth for others. Mark Morial, being a son of the South from the state of Louisiana, one of the major states in the slavery economy, what was your experience as you emerged as a leader in that state? Well, thank you for having me. Great to be with such a distinguished panel. And I think Dr. Muhammad pretty much uh, prosecuted the case or laid out uh, the predicate for this discussion Here's a point that is really, I want to put a fine point on the fact that two thirds of all wealth in the United States comes from intergenerational transfers. And so I think what Dr. Muhammad, the point he made about compounding wealth is really a critical point, right? Uh, the United States narrative is based on this Horatio Alger, rags to riches, uh, which uh, is promoted as the rule rather than the exception when it's the exception rather than the rule of people who are born into great poverty and achieve great wealth in a single generation. And there are those for whom that is the reality. But that's the exception to the rule. Most wealth is through an intergenerational transfer. And examples of that are the parent who has the opportunity to 
finance their child's college education without debt. A parent who is able to provide a down payment for their child to receive their, to purchase their first home. The parent who has money and expertise to underwrite their child's first business venture is an example of intergenerational wealth that takes place in the course of people's lives. Intergenerational wealth is not just inherited wealth, uh, an insurance policy or wealth you inherit at the death of a, of, a, of a family member. So it's important to understand the enablers. The second point that I think is so critical is that for us today, the wealth divide is driven by the earnings and income divide. So for a black family, the median household income is $40,000. For a white family, it's $70,000. So you hear a lot of people saying, save more. You hear a lot of people saying, put some money aside to invest. Well, if you're making $35,000 a year uh, and your rent is twelve, fifteen, eighteen hundred dollars dollars $1,800 a month, you're going to struggle because you're struggling with affording the basic necessities of life. And one of the things that has exacerbated and made this a much more challenging uh, battle today is the way in which the income divide has grown substantially in the last 40 years. And it's grown substantially in the last 20 years. We've had the Great Recession. Now we've had we've got the COVID recession. We have a predatory lending pandemic of exploitive predatory lending that has made situations so much more challenging today. Now, on the other side, and I'll make two other points, for African-Americans, you do have the largest, what I would call middle class uh, in, 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 in the history of the republic, which is college educated, primarily African-Americans, and to some extent, Latinx. I'm not as familiar with the numbers for the Latinx community who are in the stable middle class and have a pathway to begin to create generational wealth, right? And I think that's an important dichotomy, but that middle class is, is, is 20% at best of the entire African-American population. The final point I'll make is the caboose on the train analogy. So the wealth divide continues because black people are economically the caboose on the train. So when the economy speeds up, when home ownership goes up for white Americans, when incomes go up for white Americans, even if it goes up for black Americans, if it goes up at the same rate, the income divide, the earnings divide, the wealth divide does not necessarily change. And I know we'll get into some solutions later, but I think just to add to what Professor Muhammad said is to understand the framework here, right? To understand the historical antecedents and to understand how notwithstanding the civil rights movement of the 1960s uh, and the resulting efforts in the 1970s to address poverty, this problem has not abated. This challenge, this divide, this gulf, this ocean uh, has not abated. Uh, in fact, uh, I, would, I would argue that it has worsened significantly in the 21st century. So to set the table, to provide additional context for the conversation ahead, the following data from the Federal Reserve's report, Disparity in Wealth by Race and Ethnicity in the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances. It states, white families have the highest level of both median and mean family wealth with $188,200 and $983,400 respectively. 
Black families' median and mean wealth is less than 15% of that of white families at 24,100 and 142,500 respectively. Hispanic families' median and mean wealth is barely higher at $36,100 and $165,500 respectively. I want to now go to Adela Cepeda. Adela. It's interesting that you uh, bring up and, and, and build the program around the great wealth divide because there is no greater disparity in income than the Latina work experience, where for the last 30 years, the Latina has earned, you can fight over whether it's 50 or 55% of what a white man earns. It is the lowest earning of any other female group uh, in the United States. This is what is really destroying the economic ability of Latino families. When you have two working uh, and, and one is at a, a, such a huge disparity to what fair wages are, it creates uh, and, and perpetuates poverty. And so that is the single biggest problem to mm -hmm. me in the Latino community. And the fact that that hasn't moved in 30 years tells you something about the um, uh, the, 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 the framework that does not allow for success uh, of Latinos. Um, the other thing is that uh, we talked a little bit about what has happened recently. Well, COVID has completely shattered uh, much of this. And I think we're going to see numbers next year for the COVID experience uh, that are going to even drop those statistics to a worse number uh, because the unemployment of Latinos went from like 5% to 15% during COVID. Um, for Latinas, it went to 20% unemployment. So even though they were making very little, 20% uh, unemployment, you can imagine this is devastating to families. Uh, not to mention the actual health effect of COVID which disproportionately hit the Latino community over all other communities in terms of deaths as the number one um, most affected uh, proportionally by death. So this uh, lack of fairness, and, and, and then we see it in a, um, in a, in, in a, in a different scale. Uh, you have uh, laws like in uh, California uh, where women are now required to be on boards of companies that are based there. California is 40% Hispanic, and yet uh, the Latinas selected for corporate boards is around 5%. I mean, you have to be in the f frame of mind of ignoring the realities. Um, I, I lay this framework because the statistics on Latinos are extremely compelling. This is the fastest growing ethnic group um, uh, that uh, of the large groups uh, in America. So we are creating uh, and perpetuating an underclass. This is not good for American democracy and American um, uh, entrepreneurship, and it's not good uh, for um, you know the, um, the 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 American dream of doing well when uh, we uh, create barriers to success for one group in particular. Uh, and, and in this, we are tied together, us brown and black. Uh, I believe very strongly in that. 
Um, many, many of the people that come here or have been here for, for centuries have experienced these same levels of discrimination in terms of redlining. I remember it myself when my parents bought a home in Long Island and we were told only in Freeport and um, Long Beach were their homes available. Well, there are hundreds of communities on the island, but those were, I asked because I was a translator and that was 1971. So the barriers have been fixed. The dynamics of the community are, are not debatable. It is growing very rapidly and we have to make changes very quickly or we are going to have a, uh, an underclass that is dissatisfied. I'd like to direct the same question to Assemblyman Rodriguez. Tell us a bit about the community that you serve. Where is it in New York City? And who are the constituents? Also, tell us a bit about some of the challenges facing the community in regards to housing and access to fair wages. Thanks, Dale. And I represent East Harlem, which is a predominantly Black and Latino community. For folks who um, you know remember the history of, of East Harlem in New York in the 80s and 90s, we would have not been considered a destination by any measure predominantly immigrant community. But we recognized that, you know, at that point with a high concentration of public housing um, that needed um, opportunities um, to invest in our own community. And I think, you know, some of the historic things that have happened in terms of access to capital played itself out in the story of East Harlem and Central Harlem, right? I mean, I think it was not... um, inconsequential to talk about the empowerment zones that were created, you know, under the Clinton administration that made significant investments in both affordable housing, but also um, retail as being a really transformative moment, um, you know, in the history of Harlem and East Harlem in terms of providing access to black and brown communities to be able to invest in themselves. Um, So I think that was one important area. And through that, we saw significant investments in places like our first Pathmark, um, which was a a, a sign that investment could happen in inner city communities, building on the work from my quarter. Um, And then our first um, retail mall where they're targeting Costco, East River Plaza. Um, So, you know, so we had to literally fight for our piece of the pie force, you know, the the force access to capital that would not have come there um, by itself, um, essentially subsidize investments in our own communities to begin that transformation of, of retail and affordable housing stock in our communities, separate from what happened, you know, in the 1950s with the initial investment in terms of public housing. So, you know, it, the government has kind of played a consistent role. And I think that is often as a result of the fighting uh, amongst people of color for representation in a government that has, you know, ignored them, um, you know, in a, in a society that has often redlined them and being able to fight for that opportunity has forced uh, eventually an evolution and investment in, in the government. But we've seen, you know, as have, has been mentioned, is that wealth divide has not closed. There are still a number of systemic barriers, um, you know, that we are attempting to, um, to address in terms of, um, retirement savings opportunities. We'll talk about that a little later when we talk about solutions. But when we talk about, um, you know, um, the big solution is how do we make capital available to our communities, both public, private, and government um, capital, so that it actually invests and makes transformations in communities of color that 
have been disadvantaged. And I think, you know, everyone will have an opportunity about how we can, how we can do that. But I've seen it play out in, 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 in communities like East Harlem with large immigrant communities. Um, but the scale in, in which it has to happen has to be national and it has to be bigger. It's so important that we have people like you who are in the fight and passionately pursuing opportunities to bring wealth access to these communities. I'm going to bring that back to Dr. Muhammad, who has a follow up to your comments. Yeah, I mean, I just as someone who uh, who spent a lot of time in, in, in Harlem, right on the board of East Harlem, uh, and it's great to see uh, um, Assemblyman Rodriguez here, who's a great supporter of the Schomburg Center, uh, which is one of the anchor institutions for that community. I just wanted to tell a story because it echoes this point. Um, uh, I'll never forget arriving to work. Uh, this is several years ago, probably about 2014, and the entire front of the Schomburg Center from 135th Street to 136th Street, running along Lenox Avenue or Malcolm X Boulevard, uh, had um, an unbroken line of black and brown men in construction hats, in safety vests. And they were protesting a, um, a essentially a contractor's fair going on inside. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to say something that might be controversial, but this is to speak their truth which is that it was a minority women in business enterprise uh, event going on inside. Their problem wasn't that there were minority business and women owners inside who were essentially working with various city agencies on potential contracts that they might, uh, they might secure. Their problem was that on too many city jobs where millions of dollars are uh, distributed to build new bus depots or to repair roads, they weren't being hired for those jobs. And while the owners of those uh, contracting companies were you know, satisfied the requirements of minority or women businesses, too many of the subcontractors were white men who didn't live in the community, who didn't work in Harlem, had no connection to Harlem, and they were frustrated with it and they wanted to call it out. So I think, I think we have to be really smart about what the challenges are in in the second decade of 21st century, because the enemies of, of progress are very clear about what tokenism means and does in advancing their interests. But if we're gonna move the needle on, on wealth creation for black and brown communities, we're gonna have to do a much harder job holding stakeholders accountable uh, for making sure that our people are working in our communities when money is being distributed to build things in our communities. I hope you are really enjoying this conversation today. And let me again acknowledge our sponsor. We thank J.P. Morgan Chase, who is a proud sponsor of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they are doing to address these issues and provide solutions at jpmorganchase.com slash path forward. Thanks again to our outstanding panelists for joining us on The Great Wealth Divide, where every Wednesday we'll explore and discuss the challenges that have created and perpetuated the extreme wealth gap between white America and the Black and Latinx communities. This is also where we will focus on potential and actual solutions to correct the inequities. Our expert panelists, Mark Morial, president of the Urban League and former mayor of New Orleans, Ms. Adela Cepeda, Chair of Angeles Investors, 
Dr. Khalil Muhammad, Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And Robert Rodriguez, New York State Assemblyman for the 68th District in East Harlem. Mark, your work with the National Urban League is specifically that. I know you're working with a number of corporations and other organizations. So I was going to just take a minute and, you know, outline some practical steps to move the needle on this issue, because I think, you know, we get frustrated that the problem is so overwhelming that we need dramatic change. Yet the political environment for dramatic change may not be where we want it to be. But here, here's what's in the power. First of all, increasing the minimum wage, creating a national standard for the minimum wage would be a very, it's a doable, practical first step. Uh, many states have increased their minimum wage, but we need a national standard to increase the minimum wage and then index it to inflation so that it does not need to be uh, legislatively adjusted, but it would adjust automatically. Uh, number two, I'm quite interested in the concept of universal basic income, cash transfers, not that something of that sort is going to solve the racial wealth gap, but it does create an opportunity to make sure that there's basic family income. Uh, and when you talk about women, working women who are working in low wage jobs, working women raising children, uh, this type of initiative. Uh, I was in Minnesota for the George, uh, the, the Derek Chauvin verdict uh, and had a chance to speak with the governor of Minnesota who shared with me that he had a significant surplus as well as money coming from the government. And I challenged him uh, to look at basic family income, universal uh, uh, basic income, uh, an initiative to do that. Uh, thirdly, I think within the power of, uh, and this is something that uh, was very important what I did in New Orleans, is to is for politicians and elected officials to take ownership and control over a city, school district, airport, capital, the capital budget. The capital budget in many public, uh, in many cities is run by bureaucrats and geeks, excuse me, right? And they make decisions about where the money is going to be deployed. Uh, I forced, when I took office in 1994, I put a grid, a map together with all of the proposed capital, capital projects by neighborhood. And I brought all these uh, bureaucrats, experts, along with some of and I said, look at this. What's wrong with this? This is a problem. All the projects, two-thirds of the projects, were in predominantly white neighborhoods, right? And so we were we were continuing. So I interrupted that process and put my hands on the selection process of street repairs, um, uh, community center pools, the things that the capital budget entailed, and then was insistent on black business participation. Uh, and and, and just, you know, I was dogged about it. I paid, uh, I got scars on my back uh, for fighting those battles. Don't regret a bit of it. So there, uh, what can we do? We have, in many communities, we have black, we have brown elected officials. And the capital budget and taking control 
in some ways and watchdogging it and looking at it. There's no reason why uh, the, the Metropolitan Transit Authority in, in, uh, in New York should be able to get away with doing what Khalil just talked about. No way, right? Uh, they should be able to do that. And, and to the extent that, uh, uh, so there needs to be an understanding and some transparency. I think the other thing is, is we need a hyper renewed focus on driving capital into black and brown small businesses. 90% of our black businesses in the United States have one employee, one employee. They're very small, but the energy, imagine if uh, two thirds of them could hire two more people if two thirds of them could get the injection of capital to be able to grow. So, you know, we have to focus on some doable things. Uh, I think that a place where we have influence today uh, is that is in state and local government. You look around communities, black mayors, black city council members, but they need the policy ideas and the policy solutions and the energy to address this issue. And, and it means it's one thing to be an elected official. It's another thing to be a student of government. Because you're not, you kind of can sit there and preside over the status quo and not realize you're doing it versus being not learning how to be disruptive from the inside, right? To be disruptive in, an, in a constructive way, uh, to ask the questions, to make the proposals, and I think capital budgets are a place where, you know, you make decisions on what parts of the community get improved. Improved infrastructure raises property values. Uh, you make decisions and you impact who gets picked to do the work uh, along the lines. And so impacting that at the state, the local school districts, transit authorities, uh, airports, uh, uh, all of the places where money is spent. And so I've got a big eye on uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan uh, and have been pushing for there to be a comprehensive, I'm going to call it civil rights or equity provision inside of the plan that we have to work to see if we can craft, right? And to see if we can do, because without it, without it, the status quo will determine what gets done because these infrastructure bills fundamentally funnel money to states and cities and school districts and highway departments and transit authorities and rail authorities. That's what they do. And that's where the money is. Ms. Cepeda and Assemblyman Rodriguez, I know you both spent time in the financial services arena and Mark Moriel talked about gaining access and creating good trouble in that space of government. Tell us a little bit about your experience. I, I've been in, in that industry for 25 years, the municipal industry, and I, I, I will say that uh, Mayor Moriel hired our firm uh, in, in um, New Orleans to help with um, some work at the airport. Very appreciative of that still. The problem is that the, the minority firms get bogged down by this having to prove that we're minority. There's a whole layer of paperwork and documentation that the other firms don't need to prove ever. They don't ever have to prove that they hire in a fair way. So th there's that constraint. So it takes, you know, a certain level of sophistication and the rigors around that 
are tremendous. You're a woman that uh, that you have enough that you you know so so there's there's a there's a tremendous level of, of constraining factors. There's been some opening up of underwriting recently with what happened in, in Minnesota. There's been more activity in the underwriting world on the corporate side where there's good money to be made and more minority firms are being included there. But where capital is available to help entrepreneurs and help businesses grow in the venture world, less than 2% of that is going to communities of color. Definitely to the Latino community, less than 2%. And that's why uh, Angeles Investors is a group of individuals uh, that are, you know, financially accredited, accredited investors. We are investing in those companies that have the potential to add not just two or three employees, but maybe two or three or 10 locations to add scale, because that is what our businesses, like the black businesses, that's what we lack, because we don't have that capital, that early money to help us grow, that friends and family capital is called. How can you get that when our household incomes are seventeen and $20,000? You can't. You can't ask you know, your parents to lend you $10,000 when all of the family's net worth is, is, is so little. So we want to make a difference. We want to invest in companies that have this potential. And, you know, recently we invested in a company that's based here in New York, started by a Latina who had run these uh, streaming uh, TV services for other companies and made a lot of money for them and decided, hey, she would do it herself for uh, the Latino market. And it's called Canela TV. And already she opened up not only in the United States and hit breaking every record in terms of access to the app. Uh, millions are already on it. And it's now opened in uh, in Mexico and is one of the top five TV ads there. She created a model that fits the Latino market. That means it's not Netflix. You know why? Because 50% of Latinos don't have credit cards. So how are you going to do that monthly? That thing works when you have a credit card. You have to understand your market. And you have to figure out how to create wealth from that. And that's what I'm, I'm very excited about that. Although I'm going to agree 100% with Mayor Morial to move the needle. We need government participation and we need to make sure those big flows of capital that are coming for infrastructure and anything else that we have access to it. I'll leave it there. Assemblyman Rodriguez, I see you have a follow-up to what Ms. Cepeda had defined. Yeah, I have a few thoughts um, along with that, and it ties into some of the things that have been mentioned uh, earlier when we talk about um, the wealth gap and disparities. I mean, the role of government, when when uh, Mark talks about raising the minimum wage and we're able to do that nationally, um, I think that's important. One of the things that, that, that we're working on as part of a state-by-state state effort is to create the same kind of workforce, workplace retirement savings program that exists, um, you know, for private workers and sometimes for divine, defined benefit folks to make that same system available to other residents who don't have any other access or ways to save. So it's great if we raise the minimum wage and raise people's ability to earn, but if we don't also give them a tool of that 
um, is available easily for people to save money and compound and build wealth, we're not even going to give them a chance to, 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 to save. We're not, you know, th- th- it may not make them rich, but it will definitely make sure they're not broke. And I think that's one of the things that has been a difference in terms of um, public sector workers and um, high earning private sector workers and has excluded millions of people. In just the state of New York, you have three and a half million people who have no way to save through a, a workforce employee or employer program. That's three and a half million probably black and brown, um, low income New Yorkers who have no way to even put something away, even if it's as little as 3%. And I think that's part of that misconception that just because we're low income, you know, black and brown people, we can't save. If you give us this tool, I guarantee we can save. We've seen it happen in two other states already, California, Oregon, and three uh, three that have the same model that we're proposing in New York that we just passed the assembly on um, uh, this week um, with over 200 million in assets with over 300,000 people you know, following the same model that we're suggesting for New York, New Jersey just passed it. So they're getting up and running in Connecticut, right? So we're trying to change this paradigm and put the same tools that have been afforded to, you know, um, wealthier people um, to to make it available to everyone so that they have a shot to have additional savings. So I think that's just one way that we change this dynamic and make it more fair and even. I think one of the other ways is, of course, um, uh, we talk about that access to capital, and, and Adela mentions how her, how Angeles has been able to invest in something. Um, we know that we have public pension dollars that are tied up, that have been generated by black and brown public sector workers that are invested by the state um, comptrollers or treasurers across the country. We also know that of those trillions of dollars, we get probably about 2% going to black and brown um, investment managers and professionals um, to, to invest those dollars. None of the, So that 98% of investment managers are not going to find the company that, that Adela invested in. They are not going to find the opportunities in the black and brown community. There are very few of these emerging managers, and there needs to be a significant mandate, requirement, transparency around making sure that you're investing in um, uh, and, and giving um, assignments to people of color to invest in communities of color. So that's legislation that we're pushing that has been done in, in Illinois. There's a model for that in California, because these are systemic barriers that are impacting not just the individuals, but also the collective asset management community of folks like Adela, like Dale, who have been on the street, who have had, who have learned the ropes, you know, but don't necessarily have the capital to begin investing in our communities, but can find those opportunities and be able to make the returns. We know it's happening, but it's happening on a micro scale. As I said, 2% of the trillions, you know, is being invested by black and brown. And that needs to change. And that has to happen, you know, collectively, um, you know, uh, by government. And, and, And as I mentioned earlier, that happens when we fight for representation, and you know, and 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 claw it away from from those who don't represent us. So that's that's to me is the next frontier. That's a great point. Do you, Dr. Muhammad or Mark, have additional thoughts regarding Assemblyman Rodriguez's comments about the political process and the importance of legislation? Thank you, Dale. And uh, I just I just wanted to bring this conversation full circle because uh, just as Mark uh, suggested a moment ago. Um, you know, history offers us 
a sense of the scale of the problem, but also resistance to change. And while any particular moment of legislative action can feel like we are uh, taking the problem by the reins, the, um, the resistance to those legislative acts are also aggressive as well. And I just want to lift up that we've been down this road before. And we've been down this road before, for example, with the Community Reinvestment Act, which was a legislative fix to deal with the underinvestment, the banking deserts in Black communities, uh, the choice by the private sector um, in the financial services industry uh, to focus on scale. Uh, and so they were focused on white borrowers and uh, depositors, uh, because Black people on average have fewer assets available to them, which of course is the consequence of this intergenerational uh, theft from Black people. Um, and what that Community Reinvestment Act did was to target areas and not people. And so the loopholes that have allowed essentially the financial services sector to meet its community reinvestment responsibility has ultimately not redounded to the benefit of the of Black and Brown people at scale. And so we still deal with banking deserts um, where black and brown people are subjected to secondary financial markets. And that's where payday lending and currency exchanges and all of the extractive uh, institutions that have for 40 years been taking the hard earned paychecks um, and saddling high fees and transaction costs on black people for every dollar that they have. So I say this because the regulatory um, need for change has to account for the fact that we should not assume that there are good faith actors in these systems, because history tells us that that good faith effort is either short lived or or never there to begin with. Um, and so I think that as as Assemblyman described and looking around, this is a progressive fight. This is a progressive issue, and it's going to require the legislation to account for all of the exit ramps that, that various private sector actors are going to look for when these new laws are written. I want to ask a couple of questions about solutions, because there are a number of mayors and legislators that are trying to bridge this gap. One example is Mayor Baraka of Newark, New Jersey, who has just launched a universal basic income initiative. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Muhammad? I think, it, I think it's exactly the right kind of bold uh, attempt to demonstrate the power of essentially using a, a redistribution mechanism uh, so that people can pay for the daycare that they need so that they can be productive uh, citizens, that they can uh, deal with food insecurity because we know that in low-income communities, people are paying a greater proportion of their hard-earned dollars for overpriced bad food. And so... Um, if you can cover a portion of the income that would otherwise be missing in your paycheck, this relieves a lot of the stress, anxiety, and uncertainty for everyone from the smallest child in the household uh, to the hardest working uh, adult, whether they're a grandparent or a parent. So I, I applaud uh, Baraka for, for doing this work and uh, we'll be rooting for good results. And then Ms. Cepeda, I would love for you to weigh in. Sure. And uh, I would say that that is key. Look, capitalism doesn't work unless there's a safety net and everybody has basic human needs. It, it's just something we all have to accept. Even if you want to be a billionaire, it's not going to work 
I'm sitting on a population that has represented half of the growth in America since 2010. It is the growth. And in order to harness this, we have to make sure that people get education, have fair wages. Women earning 55 cents on the dollar is not acceptable. And have an opportunity to build wealth through the historical mechanisms. You know, I, I laugh when I talk to venture capital success stories and, and, and private equity people, and they want to do the right thing, but, you know, let's not give things away. Well, well their wealth is built on a tax system that favors them incredibly. I mean, they're, they're paying 15%, 20% on on, on what they produce when I'm paying the full tax rate. And so is the person making minimum wage. So that, that's, you know, we have to really be fair and to really be fair. It's, it is concepts of government to make sure that that, that there is that safety net where there is a large, a swell of population that wants to work because they see opportunities. So I, I'm totally in favor of that, and I I know that that is that makes for more dramatic change faster, which is what we need. And uh, and I think that changes and rules and laws that talk about opportunities for women, if you see whole swaths of populations of women like Latina women being left behind, you have to you have to fix it because. That dynamic doesn't bode well for anyone anywhere. Just to, to, to build on that. And I think that's where the, the role of government comes in in terms of the, you know, really supplying the safety net. You're either going to do UBI and give people the flexibility to be able to support themselves, their families, and their incomes as they need to, or you have to provide a more robust safety net. And I think in New York, in this budget that we just passed kind of says it all. You know, we are raising the 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 tax on, on the highest income earners, especially those those millionaires, so that we can make critical investments in child care and education. I mean, I think you know, one thing that the pandemic, you know, has showed us is that communities of color are essential. You know, they are out there doing all the jobs that people need to do. And, um, you know, and they don't have the luxury of uh, economic shutdowns. And they had no child care when they, when, they, when they get to these moments. You know, clearly the, the impact is borne disproportionately, not just in terms of, you know, what happens in our community uh, in terms of health outcomes, which are demonstrated, but economically, we're, we're front and center every day pushing this economy and this city forward regardless of what happens. And I think, um, you know, what we what what we're talking about now uh, in terms of this budget and this economic recovery is making sure that there is equity in this now and in the future. And I, and I, and I, and I keep repeating that that theme is because things have not been equitable. You know, we saw that when like, you know, literally the stock market is going is is going up. And higher income earners continue to earn at that level. And when you look at the unemployment that we've borne, it has been mostly by folks who are lower and working class and folks in, in, in industries that represent us well, industry and tourism and hospitality. So I think those are things that, that we've got to think about. So I think those kind of investments are innovative in places like Newark and looking to adopt those in, in, in places uh, like New York City, where we can think about novel solutions in addition to strengthening the safety net. I want to thank you all for being here. This is sponsored by JP Morgan Chase, who has made a global commitment 
to breaking down barriers to drive inclusive economic growth. They're investing in communities across the country, communities that we all have come from, that we all have family in, to create economic opportunities. They've committed $30 billion over the next five years to advance racial equity and to address key drivers of the racial wealth divide. So we appreciate our sponsor and we thank you. And you can always find more about our sponsor, JP Morgan, at jpmorganchase.com slash path forward. The Great Wealth Divide is a WBGO Studios production. Mike Sargent is our producer. Eric Wynn is the creator of The Great Wealth Divide and executive producer. I'm your host, Dale Favors. We'll be here next Wednesday with the second in the series of The Great Wealth Divide. Look for us wherever you listen to or download your podcast and at wbgo.org.